Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. So this is Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a soundtrack podcast where we talk about soundtracks and why they're important to us. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. You can also buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash SoundtrackCast, I think. I would like to make an addendum. We also talk about soundtracks that are not important to us. Like this, this one, I'm guessing. This, this is um, important to me. But, like, for the wrong reasons. <laughs> important in an embar- embarrassing way. This is hate important. <laughs> it's important to our personal and cultural history as people of a certain age. So set us up, Ryan. What are we here to talk about today? Uh, so Brandis and Nicole are here if you didn't know those voices. <laughs> Get Hi. to know them. This, this is our first episode with you guys in 2022, so just in case people need a refresher, we have Brandis and Nicole. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Nicole's shy. She forgets that it is an audio thing. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about the soundtrack to the Grammy-winning 2004 Zach Braff film, <laughs> Garden State. Brandis has never seen this film before. Was that a joke? <laughs> No, I wanted to point that out to make Nicole even more angry. No, I know, but was that serious? It won a Grammy? It's yeah. Funny. It's an award-winning wow. soundtrack. I just wanted to trigger Nicole. Wow. So this won a Grammy for Best Soundtrack in 2004? Am I correct? <laughs> I just want to clarify. Grammy Award for Best Compilation Soundtrack for Visual Media. For visual media as opposed to what? As opposed to those laser discs that you like saw in school when it was like going through different like animal species. I presume those had a score. So this was better than that. <laughs> that I mean, it's amazing on several levels, but I suppose the Grammys have committed worse sins. I don't suppose you have like the runners up. Like, is there a list of like albums that were in contention and did not win against this? Because <laughs> I would love to know that. <laughs> Here you go. It beat out Cold Mountain, D Lovely, Shrek 2, <laughs> and uh, Nicole's going to get mad, but Kill Bill Volume 2. Wow. It beat Kill Bill Volume 2. Wow. Well, That's but harsh. I think that this speaks to capturing a particular moment in time where what was considered indie had not quite broken into the mainstream. I mean, is that accurate to say that this this really, for better and worse, broke a lot of things into the mainstream for people? In the music or in the movie? Because I feel like that's two separate things. Maybe with regard to filmmaking, but in terms of the music, was that introducing anything to anyone? 
since we're talking about soundtracks specifically, I'm talking about the music. I'm talking about the bands that were on this particular soundtrack and the kind of indie undercurrent that was there. But then, and when I say mainstream, I don't mean people that were like downloading this shit on LimeWire prior to Garden State even being released. I'm talking about like a mass audience. I feel like it brought some of this to a mass audience. Well, to Ryan's point via text that our listeners couldn't hear, it opens with Coldplay. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan made a really important point about that. And it's not the Coldplay that we think of now, which is essentially like U2. Coldplay is like our U2. This is a different I think even yeah. I don't I don't that. agree with that. Like the I I have an anecdote for Coldplay of why like Coldplay is triggering to me, which I think is a totally different reason of why it's triggering to you guys. <laughs> but for this reason, I think that that's no, uh, uh-uh. because yes, I totally agree that like old Coldplay is nothing like current Coldplay. Current Coldplay is like the fucking worst, and I think I brought it up in some other podcast that we did about they wanted to do a collaboration with David Bowie and David Bowie's like "Mm, no thanks and they were like why and David Bowie was like because the song's not good (laughs) (laughs) which I think is priceless yeah no modern Coldplay is like you too and it's like terrible old school Coldplay like um I forget what the name of the album is but the song politic you know like that one like I think that stuff is totally decent however I can't listen to it because I happened. I used to listen to music when I was reading books, and this is the last time that it ever happened. I was listening to that album that Politic was on on repeat as I was reading The Heart of Darkness for school, and that <laughs> ruined listening music while reading books for me, and it also ruins that album for me because I don't know if you guys have read that book, but it's horrible and grotesque and <laughs> depressing and like has scarred me for life and has like made that album like Coldplay album like so triggering for me but yeah like never again like all it's I associate with but the reason why it was problematic is because at the time that I was listening to this album while reading Heart of Darkness is Coldplay was huge then so there were like at least four singles off of this album that were on the radio on repeat and I feel like it was the same era that this was playing so I have to disagree with Coldplay needing to be like given to the masses because it was in the masses and it was very triggering for me. (laughs) Coldplay is a bad example. Coldplay I feel like is is the outlier however on this soundtrack because Coldplay at this point was a really big deal and a really big get. This particular song from Coldplay which Ryan very rightly pointed out to me when we were talking about it the other night. It's more like that that rock Coldplay that they started as. So this is yeah. from their first album in 2000. It's a song called Don't Panic from their debut album. And it, like I remember having that album and being like, this is a good song. They're going places. The places they went were not the places <laughs> they wanted to go. But I remember having that thought. Yeah, yeah. I totally loved Coldplay until I read The Heart of Darkness and it ruined it for me. So I definitely think like old school Coldplay is legit. However... The usage of that song in this movie was not appropriate tonally. And especially at that moment, like the transition of setting up this like very depressed person on like intense lithium. And then you go to this like the world is beautiful and it's like not even like a melancholy song. It's like kind of uplifting was like so jarring. It's like, why is this song here? (laughs) Like, what is it doing? And I felt like that set the tone for all the rest of the music in the soundtrack is like tonally like I get that it's a time capsule for like when this movie was made but tonally none of it fit it was so jarring every single song choice was so jarring 
Oh, and as someone who doesn't even like you two, let me defend them by saying they would never collaborate <laughs> with the chain smokers. <laughs> so what you're saying is we've insulted you two by comparing them to modern Coldplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, even you two is still on its worst day. You two. <laughs> yeah. Coldplay is just chasing that particular milestone and it's never going to work. So, Cold- <laughs> so it opens with Coldplay. And I think you're right, Brandis, that it's it's kind of like, it is a little bit tonally jarring. And I think some of the songs feel a little forced, right? Like there is, there's something happening in the on-screen action that doesn't quite match. Um, and it's almost like it was done for the sake of Zach Braff being able to get the songs that he was listening to at the time, like wedged into this little indie film, this little self-indulgent indie film he had to make. I agree. I read this is basically a playlist of songs that he was listening to while he wrote it. And that's why all the songs are like a good three to five years old when this movie came out. And that's what bothered me about the soundtrack when it came out. I was like, these are old songs like this, like Coldplay had already released a new album since the one with politic Mm -hmm. and the shins had released a new album The shins been changing lives. Like they stayed changing lives for like years. I think that's the thing is that there, I think for a while there were people listening to a lot of these songs. They felt like, okay, we have some kind of little niche corner of things that we're listening to. Maybe not a lot of other people are listening to. And Garden State kind of broke that paradigm. So you have to remember it's 2004. The internet is still fairly new. There is no ability to like at mass stream music. So it's still a little bit of like a bartering and trading game, right? Where you're listening to something and you're trying to get it on Napster. (laughs) I know that seems like very arcane, but it's true. Like that's the way that shit went down in 2004. So bringing this to a mass audience really means bringing it to people that were probably older than our age bracket at the time and and didn't have familiarity with downloading <laughs> illegally <laughs> on the pirate bay. Yeah, Coldplay is still kind of edgy and new to these people. Right. Right. So it's it's relative. <laughs> when I say that it's relative. <laughs> but um yeah, Brendis, I want to know since this is the first time that you you watched Garden State. Like, clearly the soundtrack is another consideration. But did you enjoy this movie? No. <laughs> as much as I wanted to, because I am a contrarian. So going into it, knowing how much you guys hate this film, I wanted to like it so bad. I wanted to come into this so hard. Like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. But, yeah, no. I think it started out music aside, because the music was already like, what the hell is happening? But stripping the music out of it... <laughs> Like in the very like first 10 or 15 minutes, I feel like it was setting itself up really well for creating like it did a really good job of setting up what does it feel like to be depressed and not be able to enter into society or to be on really heavy medication that makes you so numb that you're not able to enter into society. I think that that first house party he goes to where he's just like completely out of it and it's like Yes, he's on acid and he has like other things, but I think just like it painted a really good picture of like him not participating and not being like a part of like everything that's going on around him. And I was like, oh, this is starting out really well. This is going to like happen and it's going to go places. And then immediately from there, it was just like a downhill of like, 
Nicole, to your point, self-indulgence and like what the hell is going on and trying to be so self-important and trying to be like literally okay so like natalie portman in her room doing the weird ass like gesture and sound and trying to be like a unique moment in time is the perfect encapsulation of this movie i'm doing something no one's ever done before and it's not literally the film that is the film that is what the film is trying to do and it's like get out of your own asshole (laughs) like that's it (laughs) Words to live by. I think I want that on a bumper sticker. And I believe he was on ecstasy. He was ecstasy, and and this this song he's doing ecstasy to, for whatever reason, is super funny to me. And maybe it fits better than some of the others, but it's it's zero sevens in the wave line. There's something like so painfully 2004 about this moment and about this song and about how it all kind of meshes together. And I also love how Zach Braff decides to just. I know he's on lithium and shit. I don't know how that interacts with ecstasy, but I I love how he's just sitting like glued to the couch while he's on ecstasy and everybody around him is like doing ecstasy things. Yeah. Right. And he's just like there listening to Sarah <laughs> It's like someone that had never taken ecstasy, like definitely wrote that scene. Well, I just think that that's like the best scene of the film. Like, from him at, like, the restaurant, like, waiting and, like, him, like, being in that, like, fog of, like, not being able to participate in life to that party scene of, like, not participating in life, regardless of what other chemicals are being thrown at him, was the good part of the film. And, like, that was literally it. Everything else was just, like, what the fuck? Like, you're trying so hard to make a statement and say important things, but the dialogue itself was like, please kill me. This is like the cheesiest, most ridiculous, whatever. Like I see what he was trying to do and I appreciate it, but he did not accomplish what he was setting out to do. I think Zach Braff, the director did a admirable job of directing his first feature film. Mm -hmm. Zach Braff, the writer, not a huge fan. (laughs) I think he sets up a lot of like interesting threads and then creates a movie that has no stakes. Right. I, I think that's that's the perfect way to put it, right? Is there are just no stakes in this movie. It is a it is a wafer thin plot line. It is absurd, but not in ways that feel fun. It is not at all naturalistic, which I think is something we've come to expect from movies in 2021. Um, and it doesn't create enough of like a Wes Anderson world to really buy anything that he's he's put into this. And I know by now, like hating on garden state, it's almost become like its own sport. Like Spoon <laughs> has a whole song dedicated to like being cynical about garden state and taking someone down because they've just come out of like garden state, the movie and they think they're cool, but they're not that cool. There's a whole anecdote about Natalie Portman feeling like quote unquote embarrassed because broad city made fun of one of their characters for giving to Zach Braff's Kickstarter for <laughs> garden state Two as kind of like a stand in for like, this person is just deeply uncool because he's giving to the garden <laughs> Two Kickstarter. And Natalie Portman actually responded to it and was like scandalized, but I think like felt really embarrassed and probably feels like she bears some responsibility for this like Manny manic pixie dream girl trope, but that's not her fault, right? It's not her material. Right. It would be Zach Braff and like him directing her to like push that to the ninth degree. Cause I can even see like her character, like, okay, I'll take it. Like I was buying into her character, but I feel like 
there were specific moments that I'm guessing were definitely written into that script, aka her making that weird ass noise and doing the dance and then saying something like, I just want to feel unique in this moment was like, no, 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 no. You could have cut that whole part and it would have been like 100% better. Like, <laughs> Well, since we're on the topic of, of Natalie Portman's characters, let's Let's pause for a minute to talk about what is probably the most infamous soundtrack movie scene crossover in like the history of cinema, which is her sitting in the waiting room of the neurologist's office, turning to Zach Braff and being like, Zach Braff, this Shin song is going to change your life. (laughs) And then we're never going to mention it again for the rest of the movie. For the rest of the movie. So Zach Braff, his character clearly has not heard of the Shins, even though they're like a few years into their career. And did it change his life or not? Did it change his life? No. We don't know. No. Did it change anyone's life? I want to hear from you if the shins changed your life. (laughs) I was working for a documentary filmmaker when this movie came out, and he saw the movie, and I think his first note was, like, when they uh, sleep together, there's that shot of, like, them in bed kind of going from their feet up, and it's playing that Iron and Wine cover of Such Great Heights, and he was like, wouldn't that be the place to play that Shin song again? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, like, it's clear to me that Zach Braff really thought that he was making his generations the graduate. Like, mm-hmm. it feel, that felt really like it, there's a whole kind of cloud over this movie, which is like, that's the brass ring that he's going for. So if you're going to go for that, like, why not have more continuity? Why not make most, if not all of your soundtrack the shins or something. So I think there's something to that where they're just, it feels like there's so much jumping around that it's, it's a mixtape. It's a mixtape that doesn't quite work. Like you would break up with the person that made this mixtape for you. (laughs) Absolutely. But the movie feels like a mixtape too, with like all the different threads. It's like, Oh, I've got issues with my dad. (laughs) Oh, this girl I'm in love with has epilepsy. Oh, my buddy dug my mom, robbed my mom's grave. Right. (laughs) bizarre what the fuck was that no i agree with you if anything i think the soundtrack is 100 nailing it in that it matches the discontinuity of the film like there's so much shit happening that has nothing to do with anything like what the hell right and because it's it's there are all these vignettes that do feel kind of disconnected from mm-hmm. one another it makes the songs on this mixtape feel like they're doing all the emotional labor like zach braff is trying to make them characters in these scenes they're given kind of this outsized importance i had to watch this with my spousal unit who i think is going to hold this against me for a while <laughs> so we watched it together and, and and his main comment was i feel nothing for these people I feel nothing for them. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's because there's really no like emotional resonance to this. And I think part of it is that there's, there's no fucking score. So if he set out to make a Wes Anderson film, you know, there's none of that, like, Mark Mothersbaugh, like scoring to kind of carry people's emotions along to sort of help you know how to feel or to connect one moment to the next. You're just dropped into fucking thievery corporation. (laughs) With Method Man. Or Method Man. Method Man is there just being like a skeezy hotel bellhop. Yeah, what was that scene either? Like, I don't even want to talk about that scene. Right? That scene was very, very like, yeah, that scene was not okay. But no, you're talking about this music doing all the emotional lifting. But again, it can't do the emotional lifting when the music has the exact opposite of emotion and tonality as to what the scene is supposed to be happening. So like, I think the weakest link of all of this 
was actually the music. The music was not doing it any favors. The music was so jarring and took you out of like so many scenes. I'm not saying that like there's not a lot of other problems. I'm saying that's how bad the music choice was. Let me tell you about me in 2004 and my recollection of seeing this movie with friends at an indie theater in Irvine. If you live in Southern California, you know the indie theater in Irvine. <laughs> not I the most there. indie theater. Did you really? So, By yeah. Irvine, right? Yeah, it's the indie theater that, that we had accessible to us. So that's where I saw this movie. It was a big deal. There were like 10 of us that all went, a big <laughs> collective to see Garden State. Like it was just the biggest deal in the world. And I think the hype surrounding it that because it, it was kind of coasting off of like hey I, I also know who iron and white is maybe this will be good like i remember walking out of it with positive generally positive feelings towards the film even if i thought parts of it were maybe a little messy i i think we walked out of it with positive feelings because it felt like it was speaking to something that we already knew and liked and i think it's only on like reflection and through like a 2020 lens that you can really see that it's not great. But I have to admit, like at the time, I felt a lot more charitable towards it. Maybe because like I was naive, just like Zach Brack was naive to make this film. <laughs> I think it's more you hate it now because of how much it's been built up, right? Like if it had just been a film and it was like its own thing and it wasn't made into this cult, whatever, that like spawned a whole bunch of stuff, then it would be fine. Like, it's by no means the worst film ever made. It does have its parts of, like, where it does do a very good job of depicting depression and not being able to enter into society. But it's by no means deserves, like, the accolades and clearly Grammy Award-winning soundtrack awards that it did. So I think that's what's kind of, like, makes you bitter about it. You know what I mean? Because if I hadn't gone into it knowing, you know, like, all the stuff you told me about, about how it was, like, received and it has, like, these awards or whatever, then I think I would have been pretty neutral about it. I would have been like, yeah, it was okay. Like it had like its moments, but it's knowing how other people like revere it so much that makes me like it less. Yeah. And I, I think I'm curious to know, like as somebody who didn't have to live this era and all of its like Smirnoff ice and low rise gene, terrible mistakes. Is there anything in this that like really works for you? Is there any scene where you're like, actually, I kind of dig that song. I like the way they're riding around in a sidecar to Nick Drake. Like, did any of it work for you? Well, I think we've covered how much I hate all of the music choices. That's universally all of the music choices. When Nellie Portman's like, this song is going to change your life. And then she's like, it's the shins. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was a want, want moment. <laughs> yeah, that was also my reaction in 2004. <laughs> I'm like, you can't. If she was just like, oh, my God, I really love this song or like whatever, they would have been like, great, cool. It's the shins. Good song. But you just can't set something up that way. Like you can't set the bar that high and then it not be like, I don't know, you're going to have to like work so hard to pay that off and you just can't. Yeah, like the shins need to show up in the movie or something. <laughs> I like that one Gilmore Girls episode. I don't know if anybody watches the Gilmore Girls on this podcast or out in the world and they remember that one episode where like they go to a club, like Rory goes to a club in Miami. It's a literal club where you're supposed to dance and like inexplicably the shins are playing in the club on like spring break. <laughs> and it's the same year that this that this broke for them. So I feel like 
I feel like being the shins in 2004, like this was a real blessing and a curse because I have nothing against the shins. I think they're a perfectly fine band. I think they do some nice things. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm trying to be nice about the shins. Like I couldn't do what they couldn't produce what they've produced. I think they've done some interesting things and they certainly like know their way around a melody and how to make a song sticky. Okay. Like we all had these songs in our head in 2004 and I can give them that. Yep. However, it really sucks to be the song, the band that's like, this is going to change your life. And then you have to try to reach that when you were never that to begin with. Like that's, that's a hard. Well, that's what I'm saying. There are only, there are a ton of really great songs out there and great <laughs> bands that are still not going to change your life. Like there's maybe a handful of songs in the world that could change your life. I'm just saying that's bad writing because you're never going to be able to pay that off. Like, especially not universally to an audience watching this, a song changing your life, if it does ever, is going to be a very personal experience. So like that's that's on Zach Braff and his writing. Like you can't pay that off. So that was like a huge record scratch moment. Yeah. What did work for me, like I said, was portraying someone who's on really heavy medication, dealing with depression or thinks he's dealing with depression and all of that weighty stuff and not being able to enter society into it. I think that was good. Was it paid off on like, oh, I'm going to stop taking my meds and then I meet this girl and now I'm going to try and figure things out? No. That was fucked. The ending, incredibly anticlimactic. It was like this really asshole, weird breaking up scene. And then two seconds later, it's like, I'm back. Changed my mind. And it's like, wow, you couldn't have like dragged that out for like an emotional turmoil a little bit longer. Like that was also like one of the weakest parts of the movie. There's also no stakes, right? Like yes. he has he hasn't built up why he needs to go back to LA. Yes. Well, I thought that was an inherent and that that place was a shithole and he wants to go back to LA. Like <laughs> but the tension is not inherent. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like he gets a call from his agent like, "Hey, we've got another gig lined right. up for you." Like he's going back to nothing. Right. So exactly. Like his hometown sucks, but he's also not really going back to anything. It's LA and he's not making it as an actor. And you assume that he has like no connections and no friends and he has a terrible job. I disagree with that. I still see that as you're either staying in your shitty ass hometown or you're going to a town of possibility. And you're having to make the decision of like, do you want to stay for your girlfriend of four days or do you like want to leave? Four days, people. It's four days. (laughs) way. Super realistic. Yeah, I'm not saying that either option is great, but there's not enough emotional tension to make you feel like it's worth him going back to LA other than to get his shit. Right. Get your shit at rest. But it's a movie. Like, you know, you need to set that up. Otherwise, you assume that all he has to go back to is a white room and maybe like a duffel bag full of dirty underwear that he forgot to wash. Because it's like he's leaving nothing behind, right? You're completely right. And I think that's why the ending is just like super poorly executed mm-hmm. and it's set to like the most dated song it's a song called winding road by bonnie somerville who i think at the time was more of an actress than she was a musician and i think that shows <laughs> it's just not, <laughs> not a good like you said it's very anticlimactic it's very poorly executed it's overtopped. it's overwrought it's not a good ending for i think what could have been a more dramatic crescendo to at least kind of like tie this into a, a, a better bow. It's And it's really kind of a disservice to, I think, Natalie Portman's character, who is just there for him to project mm-hmm. all his shit on. 
you never really get to know her, which is the whole problem with this trope, right? You don't get to know her. You don't know her motivations or what she really wants. She's just kind of there in relation to Zach Braff's character. And that's that's it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You don't know, like, is she wanting to, like, do this insurance thing? Is she, like, just stuck with it because of, like, you know, like, she needs the good insurance because of her epilepsy? What's the prognosis of her epilepsy? Like... <laughs> Like, you don't know any of these things, like, about her. You're right. Like, she's, like, a very large character on screen because they've made her this, like, manic pixie dream girl, to your point, and yet she's such a thin character in that there's no meat or sustenance behind her. You don't know anything about her, so. Right. She's just a bundle of quirks with absolutely no substance or motivation, which, again, is not Natalie Portman's fault because I think part of the sort of ramshackle charms that this movie does have come down to the people that played these characters and just, you know, some of the parts that are kind of charming, but it doesn't come together. And that's a flaw in the writing. And I think in how myopic it is and how sort of nar- narcissistic it ultimately is, mm-hmm. which is not something that that really flies today. It just doesn't work today. Yeah. Well, we also covered too, the language choices do not fly today. Oh. Well, I was like, oh, this aged poorly. <laughs> yeah, it's there. I mean, there are always going to be things that age poorly when you're when you're this far away from a particular moment in time. But it's it's there are definitely some disappointing aspects. I read a really I read a really good take where so part of the movie in the beginning shows how Zach Braff's character, struggling actor, works in this Vietnamese restaurant, mm-hmm. and there's this kind of stereotypical like bitchy LA girl. It's like, can you just bring me some bread? I just really want some bread. And he's like, we don't have bread. We're a Vietnamese restaurant. It's like, actually, because <laughs> Vietnam was colonized by the French, they have a lot of bread. Like right. a Vietnamese restaurant would have bread. So <laughs> like maybe, maybe know your your cuisines. Yes. Yes, a banh mi is a sandwich. Yes. Right. It's a lot of bread, actually. It's like a, it's maybe, a very, very, very popular Vietnamese dish. Yeah. yeah. It's actually a sandwich that is usually served very heavy on the bread portions, too. Right. Like, it's usually a lot of bread per sandwich. <laughs> they like to make sure that you know it's on a baguette. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I did notice that, too. I was like, but OK, well, I, I'll go with it. Sure. <laughs> I think one of the truly criminal things about this movie is that rewatching it and revisiting the soundtrack, like, by the way, I thought people were going to do a welfare check on me, like, seeing me listen to the Dynasty soundtrack on Spotify. Nicole, are you okay? Are you smeared off icing someone right now? Are you okay? I think one of the truly criminal things is that it, it sort of, like, ruins or downgrades in your estimation, like, songs and artists that you like. Mm-hmm. Like, I like Nick Drake. I, I will listen to Nick Drake, right? Like it's a nice little autumn day, have yourself a copy kind of soundtrack. But I hate thinking of one of these things first in the context of this film and like Zach Braff driving around in a sidecar and it's kind of hard not to think about it. Yeah, I do want to clarify. I don't have anything against any of the songs themselves that are on the soundtrack. I just think none of these songs belonged in this film <laughs> and it's particularly not at the moments that they were used i have a question that ryan might know because he's he usually does more research than i do my research involves i don't know a lot of like self-reflection and then like inner shame <laughs> but is there even like a music supervisor for this film or is it literally just zach braff like i think it's just him it's just him right which is strange and bad he has the credit of compilation producer no that's <laughs> 
So he got to accept the Grammy. Shut up. Really? That's interesting. That is not a thing. And I know like to a certain person that's going to seem like, well, he DIY this, like he did it all himself. And this was his singular vision. Like, okay, but it's also all right to ask for help. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that Grammy would tell you otherwise. (laughs) True. I don't have a Grammy. (laughs) I think what works best with this movie and why it worked with myself at in 2004 and, you know, my friends at the same time, none of us uh, have the experience of being overly medicated. So that was probably like, we just bought that, but it does really feel like how it is to be in like your early twenties where like people are still like trying to figure out what their careers are going to be or what their full-time job is going to be. Like, I know that he's in town for a funeral, but it just kind of feels like this is what it's like to be in your early twenties where you just show up at a house party and then you go on a journey for no apparent reason the next day <laughs> and you just go cause your friends are going. Yeah. True. Mm-hmm. True. And I, and I think that's, um, that's what people responded to people in our age group. That's what we responded to. Right. Is that it felt like it could have been made by a friend. I think like there's always an element of, do you feel understood by this movie. And I think on some level, maybe we felt like this movie understood us and had something to say to us and to our experience at that time. But I think as soon as you, and it happens pretty rapidly, as soon as you age out of that particular moment in your life, it's like, oh, cringe. I don't know if I should have done that. So it's almost not even the movie's fault. I think it's just you mature out of that. And Zach Braff at 28 making this film either hadn't matured out of it enough to have perspective to lend to this movie or he just really wanted to capture the charitable enemy says he just really wanted to capture like that i'm going somewhere because my friends say it's okay to do that i have nothing but like time and possibility i took it as like a little bit of a different read because they aren't maybe it's like you're in your early 20s when you're seeing it but the characters themselves aren't early 20s he specifically says 26 like they're later 20s they're well past the point in which they should be getting their shit together and they haven't. And so I think this is where it was a little bit higher stakes for me of getting the hell out of this small town again is because there are so many people in a small town who never leave. They never get their shit together. Like likely that dude is going to be robbing graves at a funeral site for the rest of his life. And all of his friends are not going to get their shit together. And this is a portrait of how they will spend the rest of their lives. And like that dude's mom, is a portrait of like what he will be like when he grows up. And so for me, that was the stake of, I don't care how much you love this chick, like you need to get the hell back out because maybe you don't have prospects in LA, but this staying here is like, it's, that's not like the solution. So like, that was my read of it. It wasn't like a coming of age to me. It was a lot more depressing of like, this is what happens if you don't get your shit together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair, but I think a lot of us in our early twenties who are listening to the shins and iron and wine, saw it more of a com- as a coming of age sort of thing. I'm like, this is my life because he <laughs> listens to the same music as me. And this is what I would do, I guess, if I met an epileptic girl at the hospital. <laughs> In fairness, right? Because I, I feel like, um, I feel like there's an unsaid thing where if you're not like this, like, you know, beautiful perfection human that is Natalie Portman and somebody rolled up to you in a doctor's office, I was like, oh my god, hey, do you want to listen to some shit on my headphones? You would be afraid. Yeah. Oh. Um, but sure. 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 Not so. everyone can enter with that opening line. 
<laughs> certain person. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. It, it, I have to say that rewatching this film, I didn't hate it. You know, there were certain parts of it that I think hold like this, like, oh, kind of warm, like, place. Like, okay, I can remember, like, responding to this when I was younger. But then more of it is just kind of like this unfurling of like that it's kind of like coming face to face with the person that you are and all the things that you were like super naive about including like film and there's something about that that's just very it's like deeply embarrassing you know which I guess is growth that's how growth feels but it's also deeply embarrassing and as an aside that has nothing to do with music when I was watching this I remember something about myself so (laughs) it was like lost to time so there's a point in this movie where you find out and this is kind of like the only tension that the movie owns right you find out that as a kid zach braff's character pushes his mom she's depressed and he's frustrated because he's a little kid he pushes her she trips over like an open washing machine dishwasher it's a Mm -hmm. dishwasher Oh, it's fallen open because there's a piece of plastic that doesn't work and it's fallen open and she trips and she becomes a paraplegic. And so what I remembered is, oh my God, for like years at like the first apartments that I lived in, I was always afraid to (laughs) (laughs) door open because I thought somebody would push me or I would like trip and then lose the ability to walk and be in a chair. That is so specific. (laughs) Because I think it instilled this weird, and again, like, we're young, right? I'm an idiot. I don't know what's possible and what isn't. But somewhere in the back of my brain, it planted this seed of, like, that could happen. But, like, it didn't plant a seed of freak accidents. So you were, like, overly paranoid about all of the potential freak accidents that could occur in your apartment. It was just the dishwasher door. (laughs) Well, it just seems so possible because it's there all the fucking time. Like, you're just (laughs) in this death machine that washes is but that can also like steal your spine (laughs) i love that i remember the first time watching this movie and he's telling that story and they're in a bathtub right well he talks about it the first time when they're in front of the fire but then he's like having his emotions about it when they're in the bathtub yeah so he's in the in the bathtub he's like having his emotional epiphany and all this stuff and then she gets out and does a dance Okay, so that's in front of the fire. See, oh, is that in front of the fire? Yeah, I'm getting in front this of the fire. Very, yeah, it's this very chaotic, like Burning Man, like I have no rhythm type of like white girl dance that she does in front of the fire. Later, yeah. they are having this emotional open up moment in a tub, and the tub is like the tub where his mom suicided herself. Yep. Which to me is like way too much. Like maybe take it slow. You just got off the lithium. It's been two days. Yeah. That was yeah. Your mom just died, dude. Yeah, roll it back a little bit. Like the hamster funeral was probably where you're at in terms of what you can actually carry. Maybe don't go to the death tub, right? But I remember watching the movie, remembering that she has epilepsy, and assuming like she's gonna have an attack at some point, whether it's on screen or off screen. Yes. And it never happens. No. That's another thing of like her being a really thin character. It's like, we're going to throw out this thing of I have life altering epilepsy, but then it's never going to factor in at any point. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's kind of a Chekhov's gun thing, right? Like she, you bring that up. She has to. Yeah, it has exactly. To it's her like, where point. is it in the third act? <laughs> her needs in her life, they're so minimized that like you, you're waiting for that. And then it never happens. It never happens. She never even wears the helmet again. And I know they kind of like hint that like, I only wear it at work for my insurance because I got to wear it or whatever. 
but it never comes up and you're just like okay well she it seems like she has like some some real burdens and problems. well I was genuinely like Ryan you bring that up like in that scene in front of the fireplace where she's doing the tap dancing I literally was like oh no, it's like a hard concrete floor and there's a step. She's going to fall and hit her head right after Zach Braff said, oh my God, there was this freak accident of my mom falling and hitting her head. And then that didn't happen. And then in the tub scene, I was like, oh no, right where his mom died, she's going to slip getting out of the tub and fall on like the marble and hit her head. And like that didn't happen. So like I was, I too was like waiting for that like gun to go off and it never did. I think that's that's why when he has to choose between her and LA at the end, it's just like, I guess he's just going to go with her. Because why would he go back? <laughs> she survived death twice already. <laughs> no, and the other thing that like, because Bren is, I was watching it like for the first time in a gazillion years with the same assumption, like she does have an epileptic seizure at some point, right? Like my brain remembered it and then it wasn't there. And there's that pivotal scene where like, it's not pivotal, but it's like hit the scene where you find him and like he's really opening up his emotions and they climb on top of that like wet tractor in the yeah. pouring rain or whatever it is. It's not a tractor, some kind of like equipment. It's a crane. It's a crane. Yeah, at the quarry. I the builder. I don't know what it was. <laughs> It's, it's, like, it's slippery and it's above this like giant abyss thing that they all scream into and i'm thinking to myself like this doesn't seem good for an right? epileptic girl what if you fall yeah that's a really great moment to have a seizure and then slip on the rain and fall into the abyss yeah but, but it's okay because the only living boy in new york is playing by simon and garfunkel so he gets his, like graduate moment where again it's all kind of like centered on zach braff's character and everybody else is just there well, what I love about that scene is he and Natalie Portman just start making out really hard, and Peter Sarsgaard <laughs> doesn't know what to do in that shot. Yes, right? He's just, like, standing there. He's just wheeling so hard in that moment, and the <laughs> and they like slow it a little bit too, and then you see you actually see like this couple seconds of Peter Sarsgaard's reaction, just like staring off like the other way. <laughs> I know I was waiting for him to do something like really like crass and inappropriate because that has been his character throughout the whole film and then I was like oh wait he's like minding his manners in this like okay this really is like a chaotic and like unpredictable film (laughs) it's amazing because you can see him like for a split second want to just leap into the fucking abyss yeah (laughs) you know at first I had sympathy for him but then I was like but you robbed that guy's grave so you kind of deserve this hell yeah I was like, wait, I mean, it's bad enough to be a grave grave robber. And then he's like pulling scams at like hardware stores. And like, he's an all around shitty character. But then I'm like, getting the necklace of your former best friend's dead mom back does not undo the fact that you stole it in the first place. What the fuck? What the hell? Like, that's supposed to make that okay? Yeah, I don't care how medicated you are. You should be fucking pissed. Yes, right? I don't. I don't think that you can put enough Shen songs against that moment to make it okay. No, like crack like, your way out of that. Being a grave robber is shitty, but then stealing your best friend's dead mom's necklace is like what the fuck, dude? Like, no, <laughs> like yeah, nothing. This dumbass journey okay. was to get back the necklace. I know, like nothing will ever make that okay. <laughs> Well, especially since he took the other dude on the journey with him. It wasn't like he even did the heavy lifting. He, like, put that burden on Zach Braff anyway. 
there are definitely some things in this movie that are that are deeply disturbing and they're not necessarily played for comedy but they're kind of like put into the ether and let go like Like, glory holes what the fuck yes what the hell i know we don't want to talk about this scene but it i didn't remember it was even there probably because it suppressed it but the fact that like method man is there like looking at a bunch of people having hotel sex like first of all like that just seems very impossible (laughs) Like, how many people are having sex at once, like, in this one hotel room? Anyway, it's terrible. I hated that the Thievery Corporation scene happened where, like, that song is playing and they walk in and they have their, like, Ocean's Eleven moment. Like, it's some kind of heist. It's, like, this slow-mo walk of, like, the three characters, like, going into the hotel. Like, what even is that whole scene? It needs to be cut. Like, the entire film will lose nothing and gain everything by that being cut and by Natalie Portman making the weird-ass sound being cut. I would cut the whole ending, too. Like, you could condense the ending down to something, like, much more clip and dramatic. But I think if you clipped all these things, it would be, like, a 40-minute film. Need <laughs> the Thievery Corporation scene just so this journey seems more wacky and it's more distracting that we're just retrieving something I robbed from your mom's grave. <laughs> right. Just about in the mood. Three moments I absolutely loved. One, when he gets out of the car at the very beginning of the film and the gas nozzle is like ripped off and in the gas tank. Totally implausible because that's not what would like happen there, but I thought that that was fucking hilarious. Two was the shirt that's made for him and then he like is wearing it and is blending into the wallpaper. It was definitely self-indulgent and it took you out of the film. So I'm not saying that it should be in there. It's definitely like a kill your darlings moment. But it was hilarious. Just like that, like visual was fucking great. And three, the medical doctor having like that one last like certificate like up on the ceiling, like you're panning up the wall of like all the medical certificates. And then there's like one like literally hanging from the ceiling. I thought was really good. Yeah, there's some good sight gags that start the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can also just tell that he had a bunch of like funny ideas that he just crammed into this movie because yeah. it was his first and possibly last feature film, right? So might as well just shove them all into one. Yep. The sidecar, the um, even the opening room where it's like all white. It's like I get that you're trying to show that he has no feeling and he's numb to like any sort of like whatever. But in order to actually get a room to be that white, you have to put effort into it. So it was like way too contrived for you to even like set up that point. It's like you're in a mental institution at this point. This is not the person of a room who just doesn't give a fuck because he has no feelings because of lithium. This is the room of someone who went out of his way to like paint the floor white. (laughs) Well, I feel like that his issues with his dad should be more of a folk like the focal point of the movie and it gets kind of resolved kind of off camera well no that's like that's inherently like the whole problem of the film like we said like the ending like all of the issues were just resolved with one line of dialogue and not actually resolving them in a meaningful or realistic way but again i think it was trying to set up that idea of coming off of like this medication and trying to find out how to feel things and how to like re-enter into society which is a totally viable plot and viable storyline and a really good thing it just it didn't succeed in doing any of that so i think that's the failings it's not 
that the premise was a bad premise. It's just the movie did not live up to the premise in any form or fashion. Right. And I think they also kind of, there was an, not an attempt, but there was not enough of an attempt made to reconcile what had gone wrong between him and his dad. I mean, that could have been a huge source of dramatic tension, but instead the dad was just another like quirky sub character that shows up behind the fridge door and he's a kooky psychiatrist and you don't get any resolution there when I think there could have been, there could have been a lot of like impact to how that got fixed or not fixed and it just never happens well yeah i mean that's a really heavy story and fucked up shit of you're nine years old and your mom has been depressed for your whole life and you're trying to deal with that and something that you do that like he said on any other day would have been insignificant ends up putting your mom in a wheelchair and then your dad not only blames you for that and then tries to make you feel like you should blame yourself for that but then puts you on insane medication that no nine-year-old medically has should ever be on and then sends you off to boarding school and then your mom commits suicide later, you not having seen her since. Like, that is so much shit to deal with and the movie did not deal with that in any way. <laughs> yeah, and I don't see, like, I understand that he's heavily medicated, but I don't see his dad just being like, oh, cool, you came for the funeral, go hang out with your friends and I'll see you later. <laughs> Right. It's like, it, it does the, is the dad experiencing any kind of, you know, guilt or sorrow or it, no, none of that is explored. None of that is dealt with. It is really like so focused on Zach Braff's character and that's it that you get, you get no emotions out of anything or anyone else. So it's frustrating in that way because there are things that are there. But they're not explored at all. Uh, and that I think this movie like couldn't be made today because the way that it like, the way that it casually discards issues of mental health would not be acceptable now. So I really think there are so many things that just don't, they don't age well. They're, they're not going to ping with people that are younger. It just seems absolutely wild that it should be treated this way. And like, clearly Zach Brass character should not be relying on a girl to fix all of his problems. <laughs> that is not going to fix your problems, my dude. Nope. Yeah. And since she's, you know, not on medication shouldn't she be like it's fucked up that this guy stole your mom's necklace right, right? and she's just along for the ride <laughs> right never addressed <laughs> i've been dating you for three days and you guys just took me into this creepy hotel like back alley thing to see right? people fucking right yeah she's trying so hard to be like the cool i feel safe in that she's not like vocalizing the shit's fucked up bye <laughs> me and my epilepsy are fine in this situation. Right. And he, he tells her at one point when they, when he's having this, you know, like emotional, whatever I'm, I'm opening up because I'm off all the drugs. Like, Oh, I feel so safe when I'm with you. It's like home. It's like, well, how does she feel? Yeah. You literally just took her to like a hotel sex dungeon. Right. You haven't asked her about her epilepsy or whether she's <laughs> fine, whether she needs anything. Like you don't care about her. And that is so frustrating and definitely wasn't, I think as much of an issue then, but really like if you want to see the positive aspect of it, I think the backlash to this movie has led filmmakers and writers to create stronger female characters because this trope that led to so many other movies that, that crutched on the same fucking thing, like it got old mm -hmm. and people saw it for what it was and it doesn't happen with this kind of frequency or intensity now. Uh, maybe not okay maybe not intensity and frequency sure it still happens it's still there sure. it'll always happen sure it'll <laughs> always happen there will always be 
bad movies or bad pieces of content that get made where, you know, lazy romantic comedies, right? Where people are making bad decisions and, and hollow characters, but love actually is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's actually, at least it like, it maybe spawned some conversation that needed to be had about how we were writing women in movies. Cause it's like Natalie Portman has every right to be embarrassed. That's just the truth. She knows that. Right. Someone tell Richard Curtis there's a new Joni Mitchell reissue out. (laughs) So I would like to talk about how Zach Braff kind of killed his career after this movie. (laughs) So I don't know if this is true or if it's just from the sites that I was reading, like in the mid to late 2000s. But it seems like he killed his career because he got punked and it went like really poorly for him. Does anyone know about this punked episode or is this just me? Punked on MTV? No, tell us. Yes. All right. So Donald Faison from Scrubs wanted to punk Zach Braff. So they went out to dinner and like right as they're like getting out of the car, they see like some punk kid who like bumps into like Zach Braff. Mm -hmm. And when they come back from dinner, the Zach Braff's Porsche has been keyed. And then that kid walks by and, you know, so they assume that it was that kid who was kind of giving them attitude earlier. And so Ashton Kutcher is like running out to like tell Zach Braff he's been punked. And Zach Braff is like, Donald, like hold the kid back so I can like punch him in the stomach. And Donald Vazon's like, dude, he's just like a high schooler. Like he's a kid. And Zach Braff is like, come on, just like one real quick one. Whoa. (laughs) And they thought they aired that? (laughs) Yeah, and then and then Ashton Kutcher's like, ah, you've been punked. And then Zach Braff is like, ah, you got me. But like the damage had already been done. Oh, I don't remember any of this. Oh my god. Ashton Kutcher was probably like, I can't get out there fast enough. Like, we are going to cancel Zach Braff. Well, this wasn't like a live show, was it? Like, why would they air that? because it's embarrassing. <laughs> I that's mean, punk is, that That's the point of punk, right? Like, it's to put them in these uncomfortable situations. You just didn't expect Zach Braff to want to punch a underage kid. Wow. Yeah, I feel like there's, like, this line that you should know that you're crossing and that maybe there's some things that we shouldn't air. <laughs> I don't watch punk, so I don't even know why I know about this. I don't know why I've seen it. What did Brandis say earlier? Get out of your own asshole. I think that that I think that he probably killed his own career because he's just he's too far up his own his own butthole. I think that's kind of the, the consensus, right? Like I also read a similar thing where he got really spicy on Twitter over some like dumb article that some media outlet wrote about the 15th anniversary of Garden State and why Garden State sucks. Like he got really really offended. Like, it was my first movie, you guys. Like, how dare you? And, like, blocked a bunch of people, went on this tirade, and it's sort of like, okay, well, you have to have a thicker skin than that if you are going to continue to be a filmmaker. And I I honestly think that the fact that he couldn't put together a team of people to supervise the music in this movie speaks volumes. I think he really probably feels like he could do it all by himself. And that's just not the way these sorts of collaborations should be. I think you're right. I think you probably like these are moments of him showing, you know, like his behavior, like probably like on set or like 
in production, pre-production, he's probably like really difficult to work with. And Maybe. so I'm sure that in and of itself probably, you know, sort of like blacklisted him in Hollywood of like, oh, it's like, you know, we could work with Zach Braff or anyone else and <laughs> it would be a lot easier to do. <laughs> yeah, he tried to follow up Garden State by starting a Kickstarter to fund his movie so he wouldn't have to deal with any producers. Well, that's the thing, wow. right? That's, I feel like that's indicative of maybe how he likes to work, which is with nobody telling him no. And that's not very collaborative, right? So although none of us here know Zach Braff personally, it does seem like a whole heap of red flags. Yeah, definitely. Did anyone see Wish You Were Here or whatever his follow-up to Garden State was? I mean, Brandis hadn't even seen Garden State <laughs> up until the podcast. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I don't know, brush me up on, like, what happens, what's the plot, if any? No, I didn't watch it. I just know that, <laughs> I think all the reviews were like, you could re- it could have really used some producers to give him notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, w- I think I was actively avoiding it because it just, um, it sounded pretty unnecessary. So I know nothing about it, but it would be interesting to do a cross-compare. I don't know if it was interesting enough for us to watch it for this podcast. <laughs> Buy us a copy so I can afford to buy that movie on Amazon if you want to hear us bitch about it. Uh, No, I haven't seen it. Nope. I wonder what cool indie bands are on that soundtrack. Right? I want to know. We should look it up. It's it's called Wish You Were Here. Wish I Was Here. Wish I Was Here. Okay, so we're, we're just one word away from a Pink Floyd song. Okay. Got it. Got it, Zach Braff. The Shins. The Shins is on the uh, soundtrack. Oh, Holocene wow. by Boney Vare's on it. Oh, oh. Who's here? <laughs> I'm sorry. They're on the soundtrack. What? <laughs> How? Why? What? What? Wait, what What are we mad about? Hosier. 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 Wh- however the fuck you pronounce it. I don't fucking care because they don't deserve to have their name pronounced correctly. They're on this soundtrack. Why? <laughs> Literally Holocene by Bon Iver is on this soundtrack, Ryan. That's what I said. This is funny, though. <laughs> and also, they got Coldplay and Cat Power to do a cover of Wish I Was Here. Is that a cover? Because that's Wish You Were Here. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they changed one word. I don't know. No, it's the oh, song is not. Wish I Was Here. Yikes. Yikes on bikes. There's a Paul Simon song. Oh, this is more than one Bonnie Bear song. The Weepies, The Head and the Heart, Badly Drawn Boy. Yeah, Usual Suspects. This is exactly what I would have guessed. Like, I probably could have guessed 50% of this if you gave me the year. So my negative feelings towards this movie that we haven't covered. (laughs) Really? There are still things to talk about. There are still negative left. So... I met this girl at a party, at like a birthday party, and she said she was a writer. So at the time, I was in my mid-20s, and I was looking for people like to kind of be in a writing group with, you know, bounce ideas off and, and such. Found her to be kind of annoying, so stopped talking to her for a while. And then I saw her at the grocery store and um, just decided to like reach out afterwards and be like, oh, hey, like it's nice to see you at the grocery store. Hope you're doing well. And she was like, I just got out of this bad breakup and like basically just gave me her whole life story over (laughs) instant messenger. And it was intense, like really like specific 
like part like betrayal like <laughs> details of really specific betrayal from her from her ex-boyfriend who i didn't know so <laughs> i was like okay sounds terrible and um i don't know how to get out of this conversation now <laughs> and she was like ryan let's write something together and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, this person's like telling me through instant messenger that she like didn't respond for the last ten minutes because she was just like weeping at her desk. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let's let's try it. Let's go write something. Let's meet up for coffee later this week. And so we met up for coffee, and she was completely terrible to me. And she kept on saying, "I want to write something important, like Garden State." <laughs> Boom, dynamite. <laughs> I was waiting. You know, so I'm like, you know, trying to like teach her about like screenplay structure because she wanted to write a movie. And she'd be like, oh, you just put like interior location and you just like write, like, why'd you go to school for this? <laughs> <laughs> but she would keep on going to like, it needs to be like Garden State, Ryan. No. It needs to be like the best movie ever, Garden State. <laughs> that is my favorite story you've ever told. <laughs> I mean, it's more important than a Power Rangers movie. <laughs> so did you write the movie? Did she write the movie? I didn't write the movie. <laughs> did you write the movie? Did she write Wish I Was Here? <laughs> I don't think so because um, I don't know the plot of Wish I Was Here, but she wanted to write a movie where uh, there's a breakup and for some reason, and she would never give me the reason, the guy goes blind. The movie <laughs> should end with him going blind. What? <laughs> this person sounds dangerous. He went blind because I threw acid in his face. Yeah, he went blind because I stabbed him with scissors. <laughs> I kept on asking, like, but why does he go blind? Like, what? why is that important? that it ends that way like explain the story and she's like i don't know like there should be a breakup and he should fucking go blind oh i know because jane Eyre was like her favorite movie her favorite novel of all time you know garden state was her jane favorite Eyre. novel of all time <laughs> no you literally just described the plot of jane Eyre. it's like it's cool but it'd be quirkier if you were blind no it's like there's a really really bad breakup he betrays her and in the end he goes blind that's literally the three takeaways from jane Eyre. i mean based on the description I would have respected her more if she said, you know, like Jane Eyre. And then I'd be like, okay. Yeah, she wasn't out there at the coffee shop name dropping Jane Eyre at like wherever you were. Pete's Coffee. Pete's Coffee at Irvine Campus Center. Yeah, she wasn't saying like, this is Jane Eyre meets Garden State. She said, this is just Garden State. <laughs> hey, I have purchased coffee at Pete's Coffee in Irvine. Okay, so don't just don't drag me through this. So thank you, Brandis and Nicole, for talking Garden State with me. Always. If you enjoyed this episode, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Um, we are on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash SoundtrackCast. And we will be back next month with another soundtrack to talk about. Whether you like it or not. Whether also, you like it or not. <laughs> I have 
Ryan a coffee and then invite him out to talk about your Garden State movie. Yes. If you like Garden State, please comment below. <laughs> we want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> can buy me a bottle of expensive whiskey <laughs> and I will try to write your Garden State movie. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.